This episode of Motley Fully Answers is supported by NetSuite, the business management software that handles every aspect of your business in an easy-to-use cloud platform. Download their free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits, today at netsuite.com. Also, thanks to Cabbage for supporting Motley Fool Answers. Get the money you need to run your small business today. Go to cabbage.com to get started. Credit lines subject to review and change individual requests for capital are separate installment loans issued by Celtic Bank, member FDIC. This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I'm joined as always by Bertie Brokamp, personal finance expert <laughs> here at the Motley Fool. You know who doesn't like nicknames? Bertrand Brokamp. He does not like him. <laughs> I like I like nicknames. I just don't like m- most of the variations on Robert Alley All right. Southwick. All right, Bob. In this week's episode, we're joined by Caitlin Zaloom, author of Indebted, How Families Make College Work at Any Cost. And Bro is going to talk about various things. So he many says. things. So many things. All that and more on this week's episode of Molly Full Answers. So, Bro, what's up? Well, I got a few things and then... Maybe a little bit of silliness. So let's start off here with number one. Get paid like it's 1999. So as you mentioned, later in this episode, we're going to be talking with NYU professor Caitlin Zaloom about the sacrifices that middle-class families make to send their kids to college. So to set the, sort of the table for that conversation, let's take a look at how middle-class families and others are doing these days, financially speaking, courtesy of a couple of articles from the Wall Street Journal. So first up, an article with the headline, Median U.S. household income showed no growth in 2018. So according to the Census Bureau, median household income last year was $63,179, which was essentially the same as it was in 2017. And that's on the heels of three years of some growth. So it was the first time in four years that we didn't see significant some, some growth in median household income. But here's the startling thing. On an inflation-adjusted basis, this puts median household income at the same place it was in 1999. Mm. So it peaked in 1999, then came the dot-com crash, so it went down. It started to recover again as we recovered from the dot-com crash, got to this point again in 2007, and then came the Great Recession. Now it is finally back up to where it was, again, adjusted for inflation, in 1999. Um, in case you're curious about where your income puts you uh, in terms of the rest of the country, so again, that 63000 is right in the middle. To be in the bottom 30%, you would earn $37,000. To be in the top 30%, you have to have a household income of right over $100,000. To be in the top 10%, you have a household income of 184 And the top 5%, $248,000. Um, now, since 1999, the economy has grown almost 50% on an inflation-adjusted basis. So the economy has grown, median incomes have not. And this is a story we've heard many times before. Uh, there is some good news. The poverty rate decreased a half percentage point last year, down to 11.8%. And that was the first time it fell below where it was in 2007. So that's income. What about net worth? Well, here's the headline of another Wall Street Journal article. Historic asset boom passes by half of families. So here's the key passage from the article. Quote, the bottom half of all U.S. households, as measured by wealth, have only recently regained the wealth they lost in the 2007-2009 recession and still have 32% less wealth adjusted for inflation than in 2003, according to recent Federal Reserve figures. The top 1% of households have more than twice as much as they did in 2003. Wow. Adjusted for inflation. Um, so, 
Of course, in any country, wealth isn't evenly distributed. That's just kind of the way things are. However, according to a study cited in that Wall Street Journal article, the wealth gap is the largest in this country at any point since World War II. And one of the big differences between the have lesses and the have mores is that the wealthiest 1% have the vast majority of wealth in investable assets, stocks, bonds, private companies. The bottom 50%, most of their wealth is tied to their house. And that's been a difficult thing to have over the last 10, 15 years, because the Great Recession wiped out a lot of the equity. For many of them, it turned them upside down, meaning they own more. So then they lost their house, and they weren't able to benefit from the recovery. So to bring it back to our upcoming discussion about college, you can see how many families in America are struggling to pay for something that costs tens of thousands of dollars, and that is going up at a rate that exceeds inflation, when their income and their wealth is only barely keeping up with inflation. That's number one. Number two, tweetatility. Yeah, so so far in September of this year, it's actually been a pretty good month for stocks. S&P 500, at least as of this taping, is up 3%, which is always good for any month, but um, particularly notable in September because it's actually traditionally the weakest month. On average, in September, stocks lose money. Uh, but so far, we're making 3%, and it's been a pretty smooth ride, which is very different from last month. In August, in the S&P 500 lost or gained more than 1% in half of the trading sessions. And that includes three sessions where it lost more than 2.5%. And it's the first month where we've seen three losses of that magnitude in the same month since 2011. So it was a particularly volatile month. And for the whole month, the S&P 500 lost 1.8%. What was the number one reason, probably, for all that volatility? Well, it was the tweet for tat trade war between the US and China. Wait, the what? The tweet for tat trade war. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, to measure how much President Trump's tweets move the market, JP Morgan has created a new index. Have you heard oh, about this? No. It's called the Volfefe Index, <laughs> named, of course, after his famous 2017 tweet where he said, despite the constant negative press, Kofefe. And that was it at midnight. Um, <laughs> So, as reported by CNBC, JP Morgan found that the index explains to a small but measurable degree the movements in the Treasury market, especially on the short end. According to the report, the analyst wrote, quote, We find strong evidence that tweets have increasingly moved US rates markets immediately after publication, um, particularly if the words China, billion, or products are in the tweets. So, it also, it's a pretty interesting stats on Trump's tweeting since he's been president. He has tweeted more than 10,000 times wow. since his 2017 inauguration. He has more tweets at 3 a.m. than he has at 3 p.m., um, which is a bit of a problem because U.S. markets are closed mm. when this is going on. So, uh, And uh, he's pre presumably asleep between 5 a.m. and 10 p.m. because he has very few tweets at that time. Hmm. Um, and uh, finally, according to Bank of America Merrill Lynch, days when Trump tweets a lot are associated with negative stock market returns. So there's really no actionable advice here other than to say sometimes things like there are risks that come out that you just didn't expect. Four or five years ago, no one anticipated the risks of the president tweeting a tweet, yeah. to your portfolio. Yeah. But that's where we are these days. Uh, and number three, the indexers are taking over. So we all know that over the long term, it's very difficult for actively managed funds to beat index funds. People have sort of caught on to this. More people are indexing. So there used to be all these discussions about, well, what's going to happen if everyone indexes? But it was pretty much an academic argument, because the vast majority of assets were still in actively managed funds. However, 
things have finally turned a corner. According to a recent Bloomberg article, we've reached that tipping point based on preliminary data from Morningstar Direct. Assets and mutual funds and exchange-traded funds tracking U.S. equity indexes surpassed those in actively managed funds for the first time ever last month. So, from the article, quote, August fund flows helped lift assets and index tracking U.S. equity funds to $4.27 trillion compared to $4.246 trillion run by the stock pickers, according to Morningstar. Investors added $88.9 billion to the index funds and took out $124 billion from actively managed funds. So, the money is just going all the indexes. What's going to happen to the markets when the vast majority of people are indexing? Uh, I think that's probably a good topic for a future episode, but you expect to see a lot more articles along those lines. Uh, and finally, two silly things here. So, the journal Annals of Tourism Research, are you familiar with it? Oh, long time subscriber. Okay, decided to predict how the world might look when, according to their research, self driving cars are in widespread use by the 2040s. What kind of activities do you think they expect to increase if you don't have to keep your eyes on the road and your hands on the wheel? Watching more Netflix. Uh, no, according oh. to well, maybe that, but as reported by Market Watch, quote, people will be more likely to eat, sleep, and engage in more on the road hanky panky when robot cars become the new normal. Yeah, something to think about as you're driving by. And finally, last thing. Earlier this month, police were summoned to an IKEA in Glasgow, Scotland. Do you know why? No. <laughs> I don't know. On the road, hanky panky. No, to provide a hide and seek game that three thousand people on Facebook said they plan to attend. Oh, so that's fun. Apparently, this is a big thing in Europe. It happens in the Czech Republic, in Australia. It happened so much that uh, IKEA had to outlaw it in 2015. So you cannot use our stores for hide and seek. Uh, according to an IKEA spokesperson, we need to make sure people are safe, and that's hard if we don't know where they are. And that, Allison, is what's up. Thanks to Cabbage for supporting Motley Fool Answers. If you own a small business, you've got your hands full with managing inventory, covering payroll, and doing a hundred other things. That's why Cabbage created a simple, modern way for businesses to access up to $250,000 of credit. Cabbage's application process is online and takes just minutes to complete and get a decision. If your business qualifies, you can access the amount you need right away and withdraw more funds whenever you need extra capital. Cabbage has an a rating with the Better Business Bureau and has provided over 200,000 small businesses with access to funding. Bro, when your daughter started her very successful Etsy business selling slime, <laughs> where did she go when she needed the capital to help inventory? And uh, Well, she actually went to the bank of mom and dad, FDIC insured, of course. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you can't go to the bank of dad, you can get money you need to run your small business today. Go to cabbage.com to get started. That's K-A-B-B-A-G-E.com. Credit line subject to review and change. Individual requests for capital are separate installment loans issued by Celtic Bank, member FDIC. Thanks to NetSuite for supporting Motley Fool Answers. If you're a business owner of a growing company, you know how hard it can be to keep track of all your most important metrics because you're dealing with a hodgepodge of business systems. You have one for accounting, another for sales, another for inventory, and so on. It's a big, inefficient mess taking up too much time and too many resources, hurting your bottom line. Introducing NetSuite by Oracle, the business management software that handles every aspect of your business in an easy-to-use cloud platform, giving you the visibility and control you need to grow. With NetSuite, you save time, money, and unneeded headaches by managing sales, finance, accounting, orders, and HR instantly from your desktop or phone. That's why NetSuite is the world's number one cloud business system. And right now, NetSuite is offering you valuable insights with a free guide. 
Seven key strategies to grow your profits at netsuite.com slash fool. That's netsuite.com slash fool to download your free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits. netsuite.com slash fool. Associate Professor of Social and Cultural Analysis at New York University, and her most recent book is Indebted, How Families Make College Work at Any Cost. Caitlin, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Um, So I could kick off this interview with a laundry list of stats and facts about the rising costs of higher education and how student loan debt in this country is at crisis status. Can we call it crisis? It could be, depending on your situation. Um, We know it's bad, but Do you think people really know just how bad it is? I think that's a great question, because one of the reasons why I wrote Indebted is because we usually talk about student debt in these huge numbers. So we know that we have now more than $1.5 trillion in outstanding student debt, more than 44 million borrowers who hold that. Those numbers are repeated again and again, but I think that we haven't really come to terms with just how deeply uh, the high cost of paying for college has reshaped families and affects families. So your book is based on 160 interviews with parents and students who are taking on debt to pay for higher education. Um, Where did you get the idea to do the research in this way? Mm -hmm. Well, I got the the idea to do the research from my students themselves. Um, I'm an economic anthropologist, and uh, that would mean that I study the kinds of cultural influences on the economy. I was off on doing different projects, but then one day I was sitting in my office, and one of my most promising students knocked on my door And much to my surprise, she was in tears because she was about to graduate, which was already a surprise. But she told me then that she was tens of thousands of dollars in debt and felt that she needed to take a job that paid a lot, but was not what she wanted to do in order to be able to pay off her loans. So one thing I thought that was interesting with your book was that you redefine what it means to be middle class. Historically, Middle class means a function of sort of your income or your job, but you define it as this special sort of purgatory when it comes to paying for college. Yes. I think that that we need a definition of what it means to be middle class today that accounts for the role of debt in our lives. So my definition of middle class is uh, being too wealthy or having too much income to qualify for major federal loans for low-income students and not having enough money just to write a check for the full fare of college. Uh, In between is where families rely very, very heavily on loans and investment, if they can manage it, um, in order to make it work. They they have to bootstrap their way through college, and that's that's the uh, the middle classes, I think. One of the points you make in the book is that just looking at student loans doesn't really tell the whole story because there's a lot of people who are they're not contributing to their 401ks or they're cashing out of their retirement savings to pay for uh, the the educations because they have these dreams about what their kids' lives should be like. That's right. Yes. So so we talk about something called like the student debt crisis, and of course. 
focusing on the debt that young people have is incredibly important, but it really does not account for all of the pressures on families that you're mentioning. So parents have to pay for college. They have to contribute something to it if they fall in this middle class band. And in order to meet that commitment, they do all kinds of things. They uh, they they draw down whatever savings they have. They might take out a second mortgage. Um, they might take on additional work. Um, and of course, all of that activity is money that could theoretically be going to their own security and their own retirement. But being middle class parents, they want to support their kids first. Yeah, here on on Answers on this show, we're pretty practical people in our advice. So we give advice like don't put your kids' education ahead of your retirement. Start a five two nine as soon as the baby is born, Rick Engdahl, um, and contribute to it regularly. <laughs> Rick eventually got around he to did. doing it, and you can contribute anytime you like. <laughs> there you go. Um, but it's never too late, is really the point. Yeah, it's well. <laughs> so, but your book gets into the okay, yeah, that's practical advice. But here's what's really happening, and. It comes down to a story of conflicting morals, in a way, and your obligations, if I understand it correctly. Mm -hmm. So, um, the story is that parents feel morally obligated to give their kids options and the opportunity to advance, and they want to. Um, But, college is extremely expensive, therefore, parents are going into massive debt along with their kids to fund their education, and it's this massive moral conflict. So, let's break it down, Mm -hmm. starting Mm -hmm. with how desperately parents love their children and they feel morally obligated to do everything they can to help them succeed. Right. So that begins very, very early on. And parents get a pair of conflicting messages very uh, early on, as you were saying, just after kids are born. For instance, they can open a 529 account as long as they've got a social security number for the baby. Um, So one message is that Uh, They should be saving if they truly uh, believe that their kid, uh, who of course is the most wonderful person in the world, um, is going to go to college and live up to their full potential. And of course, parents want that more than anything. That's incredibly important. now, parents are also at the same time encouraged to be be doing everything else for their kids as well. in the in the years where children are um, just beginning to learn and to learn who they are going to be and and actually even to get ready for college. So for instance, parents might might rent a home or purchase a home in a school district that has very good education in it. And that might mean stretching their budgets to get into that school district. And that's even, say, before um, things like sports teams, music lessons, um, testing coaching, mm-hmm. all of the other kinds of things that parents do, both because they want their children to really lead full, rich lives, uh, and also to get ready for college that they're also supposed to be saving for. So these things are, are very much in conflict. And so parents feel the, the pressure of both of those dimensions at once. Uh, it's funny because, again, listeners of our show, they hear the bro that's like, 
five two nines, stay for school, go in state, blah blah blah. But I hear the bro that is that basically says <laughs> off the show, I will do whatever it takes to help my kids <laughs> succeed. And if they get accepted to Duke, then I'm going to find a way to send them to Duke. Uh, Thankfully, it didn't come to that yet. So it's interesting. In your book, you point out that there's often with the parents, there's often one who's being the practical person and the other one being. Oh, like, I'm sorry. It's, yes, you're the practical one, right? No, right, no, right, no, no, no. But see that. I'm, <laughs> but in the end, right? I think it was an example of one of the families you said. In the end, the dad who was saying no, we got to go in state, gave in and said no, we're going to make NYU work for our kid. That's right. And that's yeah. that's in the end, that's what's going to happen. That's totally with you. <laughs> that's you. Because that was weird. Like that was that when we first had our kid, we sat down with Bro, or I forget when we did it. My husband and I, and we talked about you know having a kid, and and Bro talked about how well I'm I'm planning to save up enough money so that they can go in state, and if they choose to go out, am I saying this correctly? Yeah, then yeah. they can make up the difference. Is that still true, bro? I will see how it goes. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is very rational. And the the uh, the kind of interesting thing about it is that right. So so sometimes couples divide those voices. They say like one takes the the kind of financially strict position, and the other one you know goes all in on kind of parenting values. But the truth of the matter is that that all of us have both of those voices in our heads. Yeah. Um, and so sometimes couples just divide them up so that they can have an argument. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, uh, let's move on to the second part of of our problem here. Um, That obviously helping your kids get through college financially and paying for college wouldn't be that bad if it wasn't so massively expensive. So... Um, in as plain a terms as possible, how did we get here? Right. So there are many reasons why college is expensive today, and there is just enormous... Uh, argument among experts about what the ultimate cause is. So I'm just going to point to a couple of uh, of reasons um, without coming down on it like an absolutely definitive answer because it's all, of course, it's it's everything together. So, uh, so on the one uh, hand, we have public universities and colleges in this country that have gotten much much more expensive over over the last uh, few decades, and the overriding reason for that is because state legislatures have been hacking away at their higher education budgets for years and years and years. And so the the people who run state colleges and universities have to get their operational funds from somewhere. Or they have to, you know, um, pay teachers. They have to make sure that the roofs aren't falling in. Um, they have to make sure that there's food in the dorm rooms. Um, and, and when they're on Option is uh, is to raise tuition dollars. Um, if they're not getting state funds, that's what they that's what they do. Um, One uh, thing that people often will say is that well, part of the reason why the prices are going up is because the government is stepping in and offering all these loans and subsidies, and that allows colleges to charge higher. There's actually a name for this: the Bennett hypothesis right, yes. from William Bennett, who right. was at the time. The, the Secretary of Education, I think, in, in 1987. But actually, there's there's very mixed evidence of this at best. That's right. There, right. There's mixed evidence at at best, and and I believe that it's called a hypothesis because it has remained a hypothesis and it is not kind of transferred into being a fact. Got it. Uh, in addition, I would also say that that over the last uh, couple of decades, there's been another really big transformation in in universities, and that is 
uh, the expansion of the administrative um, tier. So there are now more administrators than ever before in universities. Um, ironically, at the same time that there are an increasing reliance on uh, on adjunct faculty. So the faculty in general are getting paid less and less and working under more extreme situations. And there are now more administrators kind of running the universities than ever before. And in between, there are tenured and tenure track professors like me who are sort of the 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 the, the winners among the losers of this situation um, who uh, who still you know make a good living mm-hmm. if I may play the grumpy old man here for a mm-hmm. second so my oldest daughter went to the same college I went to and in the intervening 25 years the dorms got a lot nicer mm-hmm. the gym got a lot nicer there was this big student union built which I, I might have some educational value but mostly it's a place for the kids to go get Starbucks and hang out mm-hmm. and you hear all the stories about the lazy rivers and the climbing walls like how much of that is true and that schools feel like they have to make it more than education it's got to be like this lifestyle to attract students and that's driving up the cost right well so I think that that is also obviously one of the reasons uh, that people put forward um, Universities and colleges are also competing for students in order to kind of move their rankings, and physical plant is part of that. Um, And also, uh, because uh, the students who can pay full freight are very highly valued, um, because they can support the the universities financially, um, looking to attract those more wealthy students uh, pushes in the direction of of, you know, fancy student hangout places and climbing walls. Got to get that sweet, sweet out-of-state tuition money in, right? (laughs) So, parents feel morally obligated to support their kids financially and give them the best possible path throughout their whole life. Um, College is extremely expensive, so finally parents and kids are going into massive debt to fund their education. And it's easy from... I don't know, 30,000 feet? Where do we say planes are when we use this metaphor? Sure, 30,000. Okay, 30,000 feet. Um, oh, these parents were just irresponsible. They didn't plan. They didn't save. They probably spent their money on stupid stuff like jet skis. Because who needs a jet ski? No one needs a jet ski. Um, but the stories you share in your book are ones of people who, who sound very responsible, but maybe they hit hard times. I mean, there was one woman whose husband left her with an insane amount of debt that she just, like, she didn't see that coming. How do you no. plan for that? Um, or is people who never really made a whole lot of money to begin with anyway. So it's easy to judge these people, but when you actually hear their personal story, you're like, oh, I, I see what happened here. Right. Well, so we have a system that's built on the idea that you can plan your way out of these enormous costs. But, um, I mean... First of all, like the the parents of today's college students wouldn't necessarily have been able to predict uh, just how expensive college would be. So even if they'd been putting away uh, money, it oftentimes doesn't cover as much as they think it's going to cover. And that's if everything is steady state anyway. Um, but of course, life is unpredictable. Um, people's husbands leave. Uh, jobs go away. People get sick. Kids go off track. Uh, and, you know, maybe they don't go to college even though you have saved in your 529 or you've, um, as as one parent and in, in indebted, talks about, um, you know, the, the kid ends up dropping out of college when she's 
prepaid tuition, mm-hmm. um, and and there are penalties associated with that. So these these programs are really designed for people who have extra money. And that's great if you have extra money. Of course, you should be using the vehicles that are available to you, like put, like saving in a 529. But if you don't have extra money, and most people don't, um, those things can really uh, kind of hamper your life. 529s are interesting because uh, we obviously recommend them. I think everyone in this room probably has one. But as you point out in the book, only 3% of households actually have them. And you can take a guess, <laughs> income-wise, where those people are. Exactly. And, it, and they used to be tax-deferred. So you would still have to pay taxes once you took the money out. And then they became tax-free. It's almost like I'm, of course, very happy since I just signed away distribution just a couple of weeks ago for my son who's in college. But it is kind of amazing, really, that somehow we were, somehow Congress thought that was the way to do it, to give basically tax-free capital gains to people who are generally already probably well off. That's right. And to, and to direct funds to major financial institutions to manage for 18 years. So, I mean, as a, as a personal strategy, if you can do it, it's great. But as a public policy, it is really, really terrible. In your book, you write, in the halls of think tanks and the backrooms of legislatures, the student debt problem is presented as an economic problem in need of a technical solution. But when you, um, particularly thinking about how, other, how this works in other countries, you see it as a different problem. Yeah, than a technical than one needing a technical solution. Right. Well, I think that the way that we got into this situation was as much about a kind of political philosophy as it was about a technical fix. So in the in the 1980s, there was a real push to start to see education uh, as an asset, uh, an asset like other assets, particularly like mortgages, or that the loans would be like mortgages. The asset is like a home. Um, And with that idea came the idea that the education uh, students were achieving was a private benefit that paid off specifically in income. So it essentially moved the, the reasons for educations into the private domain. And once they were in that private domain, it became reasonable to think, okay, well, if an education is like a home, it should be paid for with loans, like a mortgage. So that is a real shift in political philosophy. Um, and we need to start thinking about education in a different kind of way if we're really going to address the, the situation in front of us today. Um, so how do you think we should address the situation? Um, I think that there are kind of long-term and short-term Ways and there are public and kind of private ways. Uh, I think that we have examples of how particularly public universities can and should be funded and run and thought about uh, that just come from the history of the United States, like the University of California system, where I am a, a graduate, or even in the something like the CUNY system, uh, the, the the university system of the city of New York. Um, where historically education has been either free or extremely low cost. One of the reasons why I think that this is important is because it 
gives young people, even when they're, um, you know, when they're in grade school, when they're in middle school, high school, a target to shoot for. They know that that education is there and that if they really work hard and aspire and make their grades, that it is going to be there for them. When we have schools that have such incredible sticker prices, even the public colleges and universities today, that's a message. It's a message to students that those places might not be for them. And in fact, we've even seen in Michigan um, uh, an attempt to address just this. So the University of Michigan was funding students from the state up to the uh, median income um, for full tuition. That was there for a long time. But they were seeing just very low numbers of low-income and even middle-income students applying to the University of Michigan. That sticker price uh, was a message saying, this place is not for you. And so they addressed this by, by... essentially making a marketing campaign called the Go Blue Guarantee, which just advertised exactly what they'd already been doing. Um, But I think that we really need to be paying attention to the kinds of messages that these high prices put out. And then also the the reality of the pressure that the costs put on families. I think um, people probably tend to some people tend to bristle a little bit when you start thinking of college as free or cheap for everyone, right? They think of it, well, college is a privilege. It's not a right. You should earn your way there. Um, So what do you say to people who are like, I don't want my taxpayer dollars going to some 19-year-old kid who's just going to mess around Mm -hmm. and study middle-age agrarian studies. I don't know. know. Someone else come up with a a major they don't want to fund. Windsurfing was was a class that my wife took in college. So, yeah. Uh, well, so I would say a couple of things. The, the, the first is that uh, I, I would point to colleges and universities as being some of the major drivers of social mobility in this country, period. And so, and, and that is even true today with, with the high costs. But of course, we're all hampering that mobility with those very costs. So um, if we look at the University of California, again, like a school like UC Irvine, they're doing amazing work uh, moving students um, from lower-income families into positions to, uh, to, to um, you know, make, make more money, to contribute to their communities in different ways, to, to be leaders. Uh, so I think that, that the public education system is incredibly important. The other thing that I would say uh, to that objection is that we don't ask people to pay for fifth grade, and we shouldn't ask people to pay for 16th grade. Uh, so we should really be looking at what makes it possible for a young person to get an education and join the middle class. And today, that means a K through senior year of college education. Uh, decades ago, that that was possible with a high school degree, but that's no longer the case. So in talking to parents and kids, you were surprised at how little they shared with each other about their actual financial situations and how both said, both parents and kids said that they didn't want to be a burden on each other. Right. Uh, yeah. There's a, a kind of well-known joke you know, in the U.S. that Americans will talk to you about sex before they'll talk to you about their salary. So we all know that uh, that 
families don't like to share information outside of the 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 household. But I think one issue that I found, which was surprising in my research, was that that parents oftentimes did not want to share information about household finances with their kids. So I call that situation nested silences. There's a silence on the outside of the household and then another silence on the inside of the household. One of the reasons that they wanted to maintain that silence was that uh, parents who oftentimes were in a fragile position uh, didn't want their children to move forward into college and beyond with the with the kind of troubling knowledge about their parents' positions. So parents worried about being a burden, and the silence was a way to address that. Not effectively, though. <laughs> well, it, it delays it delays a reckoning. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's hard enough for anyone to put their kid through college, but it's even harder um, in your book you talk about for African-Americans. Um, you talked about uh, the family Ramona and Stanley Gates and their son Stanley and how for generations back their family has had a tougher path to college. Right. I mean, so one thing when we talk about student debt as a problem for young people and loans, we're not thinking enough about intergenerational mobility. So like the, the Gates family, um, who really really generously shared their story with me and even um, took me to their alma mater in Mississippi, Mississippi Valley State University, an HBCU, a historically black college um, in the in the cotton uh, belt in Mississippi. Um, they started out from, you know, very modest backgrounds um, and were able to move from Mississippi um, in low-income situations to Columbus, Ohio, and being uh, social workers uh, because of their educations. Uh, now, when Ramona and Stanley, the parents, went to Mississippi Valley State, it was also very inexpensive for them. So when their son, who was a very high achiever, uh, as they you know had worked so hard to, to encourage him to do, uh, when that son went off to... Uh, um, to apply and, you know, found Howard, they wanted to make that possible um, at, at any cost. And that meant for them um, getting, getting loans that would bridge um, all of the historical discrimination that they had faced. I mean, they didn't, they didn't have very high incomes. They certainly didn't have any family wealth. And for, uh, for that particular family, they found the um, even the loan door um, shut in their in, in their faces too many times. Um, so it can be really really difficult for African American families. Well, they even went to their church and and asked people in their church to help donate money to help their son go to school, and they had to go ask aunts and uncles and everyone um, to to help fund their son's education. That's right. Yeah, I mean, so when we rely on credit. For, for young adults to get to and through college, it reproduces all kinds of inequalities that already exist. Because, for instance, we know that, that overall African-Americans have lower credit scores um, than, their, than their white peers. Um, and that's 
for all of the reasons that 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 we know so well. I mean that that they that African Americans have been excluded from the engines of wealth, that they don't make as much money in the job market, um, and that also means that their networks are oftentimes um, uh, also you know suffering under under lower credit scores as well so they can't necessarily just go to mom and dad or even a rich uncle um, for instance the the gates family um, looked to different members of the family to co-sign on loans but those people were also turned turned down so we have to really understand that that credit uh, is a function of these historical conditions that people live with every day, and good credit is oftentimes about uh, about having the privileges of, of white middle class families uh, that are too often taken for granted. Yeah. Well, in your book, you write, no matter how often or forcefully. Experts tell students and parents that they should make college decisions based on what they can afford. Ultimately, middle-class families value their children's potential above all else. And it's such a beautiful idea, right? <laughs> like, we love our kids so much, and we want them to have a better life than we did. But it's being paid at an insane and quite literal price. And so, do you have any clothing, closing thoughts for us here? Yeah, I mean, so I, I think that that there are a couple of um, sort of strategies that people can can use uh, before we fix the major problem in front of us. Um, and so one thing is to um, focus on helping your kid get really good grades in high school so you might actually be able to access some of the merit aid that is out there for students. Um, I think merit aid is a again, it's a it's a good personal strategy. It's a terrible kind of overall social educational policy. But uh, but I think personally that's an important thing to do. But Just to, yeah. to follow on, on that because one of the points you made in the book is that I think it was a study that looked at the kids who are getting merit aid and and uh, they were pretty well off and, and a lot of these families were well off and paying much less than needier kids. Yes. So I think as a as a personal strategy, what that that encourages people to, to do is to look at schools that aren't the reach schools. It's the schools that they that uh, that want higher paying families. So in the in the long run, this the colleges and universities that offer a lot of merit aid lo- are looking to attract um, higher paying families um, overall. Um, and the the second thing that I that I would suggest people do is just to, is just to kind of widen the lens about what kinds of schools uh, are going to be good for their students. Um, and you know, we all I think want our children to do well. That's that's a uh, a very very strong impulse of parenthood. But I think that there are there are a lot of ways to do that, and we should we should really appreciate that. Caitlin, thank you so much for joining us here in the studio. This has been really fascinating. Thank you. Um, Again, her name is Caitlin Zaloom, and the book is Indebted, How Families Make College Work at Any Cost. Well, that's the show. It's recorded indebtedly by Rick Engdahl. Our email is answers at fool.com. For Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody. Stay foolish, everybody.